Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. This week, we're proud to continue a conversation from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program. This session was entitled Undocumented, The Price of Admission, in which acclaimed authors Reina Grande, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Ingrid Rojas Contreras explored the unforeseen cost of the undocumented experience. Ernesto Portillo Jr. moderated the panel. This is part two of a two-part series. Up first, Neto Portillo Jr. introduces the panelists and continues the discussion on what's missing in coverage of immigration issues. Hola, buenas tardes. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Tucson Festival of Books 2019. My name is Neto Portillo. Welcome to the uh, Festival of Books, this panel called Undocumented, The Price of Admission. Here to my uh, far, far left, Reina Grande is the author of the best-selling memoir, The Distance Between Us, where she writes about her life before and after coming from Mexico to the United States as an undocumented immigrant. And the much-anticipated sequel, A Dream Called Home, was released in fall last year. Her other works include the novels Across the Hundred Mountains, Dancing with Butterflies, and uh, she has, uh, she's working on a book, and if you ask her, she might tell you what she's working on. She has received numerous awards, including the Premio Aslan Literary Award and the International Latino Book Award in 2012. In, in the middle is Jose Antonio Vargas, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Emmy-nominated Emmy filmmaker, and a leading voice for the human rights of immigrants. He is the founder... He is the founder and CEO of Define American, the nation's leading nonprofit media and cultural organization that fights injustice and anti-immigrant hate through the power of storytelling. His memoir, Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen, was published in fall of 2018. And lastly, Ingrid Contreras, uh, Rojas Contreras, was born and raised in Bogota, Colombia. Her first novel, Fruit of the Drunken Tree, is an Indie Next selection, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great News Writers selection, and the New York Times Editor's Choice. Her essays and short stories here have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, BuzzFeed, Nylon, among others. Ingrid has received numerous awards and fellowships. Ingrid, what do you think is missing in today's uh, journalism when it comes to, to the question of, uh, of migration, undocumented immigrants, family separation? I know it's very broad, but what stories are we, are, are we missing or we're not telling enough about? Um, I've also went to a few journalism classes and then left. <laughs> <laughs> this is a bad line of questioning, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. I, yeah, I you should have asked that. <laughs> this, the same as Isabel Allende described, I had the same experience that she had where she was really serious about wanting to go into journalism and she would go and do all her reporting and then come back and then when she was typing the story, she would just make something up. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how I knew that I, you know, I wasn't cut out for, for journalism, per se. Um, but I, I, like right now, I, I did find that what I really wanted was to uh, understand myself and peel back all these 
maybe like protective uh, layers that we put on our experiences and just see what was there and what had happened and what was I hiding from myself or from other people. Well, yeah, it's hard to, to think as, as a journalist. I think the stories that, that, I, that I know are, are missing you know, like pertain to Colombian experience because that's what I what I know the most. Um, we often in the U.S. Uh, hear about uh, like the the Colombian conflict is just like there's there's armed guerrilla groups or armed paramilitary, and then there's uh, civilians. And what I think what we don't hear about that and um, is that. A lot of a lot of civilians are actually kind of threatened into joining guerrilla groups, and then they're kind of stuck in this situation, and then they can't apply to be refugees because they've they're they're now became part of a uh, terrorist organization. And I, I would say that's one thing that uh, I haven't heard enough about. Well, let me ask a journalist in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I um, let, let's contextualize this even more. I think if you're David Brooks. You're um, Thomas Friedman. If you're, and again, you know, straight white guys, you're amazing, you're great, right? <laughs> but, 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 I'm actually working on a documentary now called Straight White Guys. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> they may really deport me after this one. Um, but if you think about where David Brooks comes from every week, or twice a week, actually, so they're allowed to give their point of view. I, me, and my is a given. It's the default, right? It's analysis. When a person of color says it, or a gay person or a woman, it's an agenda. It's bias, right? I mean, that is, um, um, that is a profound crisis. And I actually think it hurts not only women, people of color, and LGBTQ people, I actually think it also hurts straight white guys because you keep wanting to be in the middle when you're not, right? So that's a big, I am, I am fascinated with white identity, with the construction of whiteness. Now, I mean, the Tim Weiss, I mean, I've read all that other stuff that's white privilege, I get that, because in the past eight years, I've been traveling across the country, like, nonstop, right? And to me... Part of the subjects that we're missing is that there are 43 million immigrants in this country today. I don't know if you all know that. 43 million, 11 million of whom are undocumented that we know of, right? Those 43 million people, according to the Pew Research Center, will constitute 88% of the total U.S. population growth in the next 50 years. I don't know what's happening. Well, thank you, but um, I don't know what's happening, but white people, you all are not having as many babies as you used to have. I don't know what's happening. Black people, kind of the same. Latinos and Asians are having lots of babies and sometimes they're having them together, which is amazing, right? <laughs> so that is the subtext in a lot of this conversation. And you know, my favorite quote about journalism is actually from Arthur Miller, the playwright. Um, he said- A white guy. A white, yes, a straight <laughs> white guy. Um, he said that a good newspaper is a country talking to itself. Mm. I would argue that we have often just gotten the other side of it. Right? And part of what we're living through now, like this movement of movements, the Black Lives Matter movement, the trans movement, the immigrant rights movement, the Me Too movement, all of that is trying to decenter what has always been at the center. So how do we do that with empathy? Like how do we do that without having to fight a civil war? How do we do that? 
And I think, frankly, I think artists, the role of storytellers, may there be journalists or novelists, short story writers, filmmakers, painters, I think that is the work that I want to be involved in, is creating language for that. Mm -hmm. Reina, the, uh, individually, uh, immigrants pay a price for admission. Uh, collectively, as, as a society, as a country, what is the big price that we're paying in trying not just to keep people out, but making lives miserable for them, for oppressing them, for separating them? As a country, what, what's this price that we're going to pay? For me, you know, one of the things that I see, I, I travel a lot and I visit um, schools across the country and there's so much talent and passion uh, from our, our immigrant students, you know, our dreamers. And I think about how we refuse to open the doors for them, you know, how year after year after year we just refuse to pass immigration reform that will open the doors for our undocumented um, community. And when I see all these students who are working so hard on their education, working so hard to um, better themselves, and yet the door remains closed for them. And I think about how, as a society, we're just doing such a huge disservice. Because youth, no matter um, their backgrounds, all are youth. They are the future of this country. And if we continue to shut the door and treat our immigrant youth, our undocumented immigrant youth as second class citizens, we are going to pay a big price later on. Because we're denying ourselves their skills and their talents and their passion and their hard work. So we definitely need to do something about that and allow them to reach their full potential, allow them to continue to contribute and increase their contribution to our society because we're going to be the better for it if we do that. You are listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled Undocumented, The Price of Admission, on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Moderator Neto Portillo Jr. and acclaimed authors Reina Grande, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Ingrid Rojas Contreras explored the unforeseen cost of the undocumented experience. Ingrid, Ingrid, would you, would you riff off of that also? Would you uh, add some comments to, to, yeah, to this um, discussion? Right after, so right after the, the election happened, I was really thinking about like what, what is the community that I can give back the most to? And so I, I wrote a grant to work with immigrant high school students in San Francisco. I got it together somehow in two weeks. I found my funder, I made a connection with a school, I like collaborated with the teacher, I like somehow did all this. It was the only thing that I could think of to do. Like I am good at telling stories and in a way that it has kind of an intangible value. And I wanted to to work with a community that I felt maybe they were not seeing their stories anywhere and I wanted to be there for that. I wanted to facilitate those stories. I've been working with immigrant high school students and some of them are, are dreamers, some of them are, are documented and some are like second generation immigrants but you know going there I go like twice a week and I take half of a class and 
they tell like short stories, they've written poems, they've made books, we made a painting, and I can see that how much of an impact that has on them. There was one project that I think was the most uh, moving for them. So uh, Trump had like an executive order where he was trying to uh, make uh, sanctuary states illegal. I collaborated with a, a, a painter, and we screen printed the, the executive order on these canvases, and we did an erasure poem with the, with the students on it. And it was so satisfying for them to, to choose what words they, they wanted to keep so they would tape over them and then painting over everything else. They were so happy to, to have that kind of agency and that kind of perception that you have a voice and you can voice what you want the country to be. We got a gallery show for them in the city and so they, in San Francisco, and that was another moment where like they saw their you know kind of like their own opinions and their own hopes you know instead of making these illegal like what if we you know we took parts of words and then changed the meaning there was a student who he just took like a couple of letters from the whole thing and he spelled out latinos are scared of trump and everything else was painted. So there was such a wide range. Other students changed the executive order so that it said the opposite. Like, you know, everyone is going to have a a sanctuary uh, city, and this is, like, required. It was really beautiful to facilitate that, and I think that's where I see maybe, like, where I can have, like, the most impact, and also um, I can really see how important that is. Thank you. Uh, Another price of admission... Jose, when he uh, left the Philippines, he was, uh, it, was a, it was a boy, and he has not seen his mother since he left. Uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, Jose, being separated from, from my mother, who's here with me right now. She follows me wherever I go. <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, how do you deal with this every day, even though you can maybe see her on Skype? Probably the hardest thing to write about in the book because when it went memoir way, I was like, shoot, now I gotta have to do something I didn't want to do. I had to find language to write about her and have it be authentic, meaning I don't know her. I don't know her. Like, I know that every month I send her money, right? Because that's what we do. I know that I say I love you. I know that I greet her on her birthday. I know that I buy her what she wants from Macy's. I know. I know that. I know it as, like, things. I don't know it as feelings. And so I actually, when I was writing it, when you see in the book the way it's paced, it's pretty quick. But I actually ended up cutting maybe 10,000 words about her when I was writing the book because it didn't seem real. As if I was trying to make her up because I was trying to, like, you know, the whole genre of writing is I'm supposed to, like, tell you a lot of stuff. But... I'm still working through all of that. Like, even the way you asked that question, right? I don't know how to capture 25 years of loss. And the fact that she's kind of the ghost that haunts the book, to me, she ends the book, right? The book ends, she has the last sentence in the book. And I thought that was only appropriate. So right now, she's been waiting for 16 years to come legally. You know, she can't even come on a tourist visa because she doesn't own property and she's not a college graduate, right? Like, that tells you a lot about how this whole thing works. If she were a French woman and she wanted to go see Hamilton over the weekend, 
She could just buy a plane ticket. She's in New York. She can overstay her visa and poof, she's an undocumented person. Oh, but she has a cute French accent <laughs> that's not considered ethnic or exotic or foreign, right? So my mom, two more years, but the problem right now, and I think this is the thing that the Trump administration has done so well in a bad way is the fact that they're cutting legal immigration. That's what they're after. So if they succeed, even though my mom has been waiting in line to come, since she's not considered someone with merit, unless giving birth to me was merit, she may not be able to come. So lastly, to kind of contextualize this, I think what we've lost, you know, we talk about the price of admission. What we've lost, I think, in the past couple of years of this nightmare that we're living through is we have lost the idea of migration as a courageous thing to do. It takes a tremendous amount of courage. When I think about my grandmother, who moved here in 1984, the only English she knew was Nat King Cole songs. Right? Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, Mona Lisa, I love you for sentimental reasons. Oh, that's all she knew. And then she came here, right, with nothing. She didn't even speak. I think it was maybe, you know, she could go to the grocery store and ask where the toilet paper was. Like, the courage that it took to come here, to me, is what we have kind of lost, that idea that it's courageous to do this. That makes me sad, because in a country where, unless you're African-American or Native American, you came from somewhere. And you came from somewhere there was, when there was no visa process, right? There was no green card. You didn't have to wait. You just came, right? So what makes your experience different from what we have to go through? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I want to comment a little bit on the, on the parent loss because my parents came here uh, first. You know, my father came here when I was two and my mother came when I was four and a half. And I spent my childhood longing for my parents. And we were reunited, you know, I was, I was able to see my mom again, my dad again, but you never really get your parents back because the parents who you're separated from, they're never the same parents that you're reuniting with. And I feel that even to this day, that little girl in me is still waiting for her parents to come back. And one of the things that we lost during our immigrant journey was our relationship because we all change. It's, it's somehow, after we crossed the border, everybody changed. And my relationship with my parents was never the same. And sometimes I imagine us stuck at that border, still running and still trying to get across. Like there's, there's a part of us that got left there at the border running through that no man's land, still trying to find our way back to each other. Ingrid, do you want to add anything to that? That's just so beautiful. Thank you. Um, we're going to turn it over now to, to you. I know you have lots of questions. What's changed in the manifesto if you were writing today? What's so, different? Uh, okay, the most provocative part of the title is Citizen. So I was going to write a book about what citizenship constitutes, what it means. Mm -hmm. Because I actually think that's what's on the table, right? Like, so how many people here are U.S. citizens? Can you raise your hand? Amazing. So how did you get it? What'd you do? Oh, the accident of birth. How amazing. Right? Is that how the country got to be so great? Because you all were just born here and then that's it? 
right? The civil rights movement. So I actually think, like, again, when I was talking a few minutes ago about all these movements of movements, like the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, the LGBTQ movement, I actually think a lot of that speaks to wanting full equality and full citizenship, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Of course I want immigration reform to happen, right? I don't know what that's going to look like. But are we actually going to think that you pass immigration reform and all of a sudden 11 million people are going to feel welcome in this country? Talk to black people about that after the 1965 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, right? So that, I actually think, if I do this next book, which I don't know if I'm going to do it yet, but for me, it's since I'm not allowed to leave the country, like, you know, if I leave, they won't let me come back in, thanks to what Bill Clinton signed into law in the mid-90s. So writing about global citizenship is my way to claim the world outside of my physical borders. So if I were to write a book about a manifesto, that's what it would be about. Like, the difference between citizenship in Germany versus Japan versus America, like, how are those systems? My book is dedicated to, um, among others, the 258 million migrants in the world. There's 258 million migrants in the world. We don't know how many of them are unauthorized, but the question of who welcomes them and how they're welcomed in these countries, I think, is a defining story of the 21st century. In the age of climate change, in the age of globalization, right? I think we have to really grapple with that. You're listening to a session from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled Undocumented, a price of admission on 30 minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Reina Grande responded to a question about her relationship with her mother tongue and her second language. One of the things that I touch on on my CNN piece that, that was published was um, contrasting my daughter's experience with language learning versus mine. Because as I mentioned earlier, the way that immigrant children are educated in this country, a lot of us experience language loss yeah. when we are forced to give up our mother tongue to, to um, learn English. So I experienced subtractive bilingualism. And what that means is that through the years that I went to US schools, I lost my mother tongue more and more, and it was replaced with English. So as I mentioned earlier, like my, my children, I didn't teach my children Spanish. I did not give them the gift of bilingualism because of these traumatic experiences with language learning. But a few years ago, I moved to a new city in California, and our local school had a two-way Spanish immersion program, immersion program. And I begged them to let my daughter in. <laughs> And they gave her a placement test, and she almost failed it because she could only say individual words like agua, mama, papa, but she couldn't speak in sentences. And they only let her in because she was my daughter, and I begged enough. But in six months, my daughter became completely bilingual because these programs, the dual language immersion programs, what they do is they teach the kids in both languages. Right now, she, she, she gets 50% of Spanish, 50% of English every single day. And she was never asked to subtract or reject or replace anything about herself. And UNESCO defines uh, learning a second language as a language acquired in addition to your mother tongue. But in my case, 
the second language I acquired, which was English, it was not in addition to. It was a subtraction. Whereas with my daughter, she has learned Spanish in addition to her, her mother tongue, which is English. And what, has, what her bilingual program has taught her is that she is now more, not less, than who she used to be. And that's what we need to teach our children. We need to celebrate languages. And we need to treat um, bilingualism, multilingualism as becoming more, not, not less. My, my relationship with Spanish is still really complicated. I'm, still, I'm actually writing more and more about it because I'm trying to come to terms with it. But I had a really, um, a, a really traumatic experience with this book, uh, A Dream Called Home, because it was translated by a professional translator in Mexico. And it was so traumatic to read my manuscript translated into my mother tongue because I didn't understand it. I, and, I, and I can speak Spanish, but like conversational, but I didn't have formal training. So my, my Spanish, uh, it's really not beyond third grade, which is what I studied in Mexico. And when I received the translation of this book, I had to keep picking up the dictionary to, to look up words that I didn't know. And I experienced this tremendous sense of loss of what I didn't know. And it, um, it, it really affected me so much that, I, that I'm still kind of dealing with it because um, there's nothing worse than reading your, your work in your mother tongue and not being able to understand it. So that's, that's kind of what I'm dealing with. And it didn't sound anything like me at all. Um, so I had to ask my editor if I could go back and re-edit the manuscript. Because I decided I don't want a perfect translation. I want it to sound like me. And my Spanish is not perfect. It's broken, and that's OK. I could live with an imperfect translation. This additional web segment includes panelists' responses to questions about family trauma and healing related to migration. I've actually been thinking a lot more about my mother because um, I know that I never really stopped to think about her experience and her sense of alienation with her own children. And now I'm starting to get an inkling of that myself because I'm, I am an immigrant parent raising two middle-class American children. And sometimes I feel like I need to go read Sweet Valley High and the Babysitter's Club to understand my children's childhood. So I feel a little bit alienated sometimes from their experience. I feel a little distant from them. And I do feel like, like sometimes you cannot follow your children and where they're going. Like, and, and, I, and, and my heart breaks for my mother because she experienced that too in a much bigger sense than, than what I'm experiencing, experiencing with my children. Look, I think it's great that there are legal services out there. I think it's great that there are so many advocates and activists doing the kind of work that needs to happen. But I do think what doesn't happen enough is we don't have enough mental health experts there should be a trauma center, frankly, in like every immigrant community across this country, mm-hmm. frankly, to deal with this stuff. You know, it's, it's interesting. Okay. One of the questions I was asking when I was writing my book was, 
what happens when a person is not seen by the government that he or she belonged to, right? Like the severance from the government and how does that lead to the severance of the self? Like I don't, I don't feel like a human being. I don't. I, um, I have to constantly fight that to be able to, like, you know, when I fly out of here tomorrow, because I am in Arizona, I am going to freak out a little bit at the TSA line, knowing that the ID that I'm going to present is going to be a questionable piece of ID. Okay. And then when I get through that, I have a call with my accountant, because I'm so busy right now that I'm literally placing calls on the weekends, about taxes that I have to pay this April. So as I get through the, I, I'm going to get through, hopefully, everything's fine. I have lawyers. It's fine. You're looking probably at the most privileged and documented immigrant in America. <laughs> So I'm going to get through the TSA line. It's going to be fine. Then I'm going to talk to my accountant who's going to say, this is how much money you have to write to the IRS this April. Now, I am happy to write that check. I am glad to be one of many undocumented workers who pay billions of dollars in taxes to this government. The very same tax dollars that they use to detain and deport us. What the hell is that about? Right? Um, so I think, to me, what I, what I worry about is this sense of separation between people who occupy the same space as you, who don't feel like they're themselves, like they can't be themselves. I mean, Raina talked about it in terms of the opportunities that immigrant kids, you know, what, what they're deprived of. Um, I'm, I'm going to North Carolina next week, and in the state of North Carolina, undocumented students can't go to community colleges. In the state of Georgia, they can't go to public colleges, right? What the hell are we doing, right? And so I think that's this whole feeling of a whole. One last thing I'll say about this. Um, I really grappled a lot with writing about faith. Like I was raised a Catholic because, you know, Spanish colonialism. Um, and when I was detained in Texas, which I wrote about in the book, I, that was the first time, because you know, I was detained for eight hours, there's nothing to do, you don't have an iPhone. <laughs> so you just think about everything. And one of the things I started thinking about was God. And like, is this what God intended? And I didn't end up writing about it, because again, it, it, it didn't seem, it seemed that I was just kind of intellectualizing it, it didn't feel organic. But then when I was in North Carolina, everything happens in North Carolina, um, I met this young Guatemalan man um, who's lived in this community uh, who used to be 90% white that's now 75% Central American. And he said going to church was something they look forward to every Sunday because inside the church is the only place where they feel full. Because they know the moment they go inside that church, God didn't ask for papers. And then he goes, I didn't think white people liked us until we got inside the church. In the church, they hug us. So I've been thinking a lot about that, like the role of places like churches, community centers, libraries. I, I firmly believe that in this crisis that we're living through, the role of local communities is more important than ever. You get to decide who's welcome. You get to decide that you're going to have, you know, different authors of different languages, different cultures. That's what welcoming is for you. So I think you that's know, what we have to figure out. I kind of feel that way at airports. 
<laughs> and I think that's why I love to travel. Like in the fall, I went to over 30 cities. So I visited a lot of airports. And that's, that's the feeling I get at airports mm -hmm. where it's so diverse. And there's no like people of color versus white people at the airports. Everybody is, n you, nobody's looking at you like, like you're weird and that you're standing out and, um, and you don't feel like, you know, what are you doing there? And, and I like that feeling. So um, definitely at airports is when I feel like this, this, this really represents the society, you know, that diversity of our, of our society. So why is it that in other spaces we continue to deny that there's such a beautiful, diverse community living in this country? Ingrid, do you want to add to that so we can close out? Um, Last word. I, you know what I always think about is that moment when you're in the air, in the airplane? Because um, it feels like, well, you're not on ground, and then you're just a group of people on a plane. Um, and I like that, that feeling of statelessness. Um, but I do, I do think, you know, it, the, the violence always starts with the language, like the, and against any group. And I'm, I'm still very unhappy that we're using the term alien. I'm unhappy that uh, we're still using the term illegal. Um, and I think we should, you know, if it starts with language, like we, we also, because we, I am preoccupied with language, that that's the thing that I kind of want to change immediately. And it's such a small thing, but it has such a huge impact. What you're called, uh, what the state makes you feel that you are, it has such a huge impact. Um, so I think, and I think it's, we're, it's in our power to change that. So, thank you. We'll have to leave it there. You've been listening to a conversation from the 2019 Tucson Festival of Books curated by Pima County Public Library's Nuestras Raices program entitled Undocumented. The price of admission on 30 minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson. Moderator Neto Portillo Jr. and acclaimed authors Reina Grande, Jose Antonio Vargas, and Ingrid Rojas Contreras explored the unforeseen cost of the undocumented experience. This has been part two of a two-part series. Thank you for listening. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes of 30 Minutes on the 30 Minutes program page at kxci.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Music and Google Podcasts. And keep up with us on a 30 Minutes Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.